The Psalms are beautiful and they're, they're great to preach from because they are very intentionally structured poems and more specifically songs that would have been sung and they represent the heart cry of God's people and in it we see a lot of we see a lot of beautiful personal things but we also see the magnification and the glory of our God crying out from the hearts of the people who wrote them and then sung by God's people together as their hearts are brought to to think about certain themes and things that's why the psalms are very specific Themes. Psalm 50 is an interesting one, one that has caught my attention for several weeks now, and I found myself coming back to it as I had many psalms that I was thinking about preaching on. The one that won in my heart and in my attention was this psalm, mainly because it's one I had, I personally just never focused on. It just seemed new to me. It seemed fresh to me. It seemed one that I wasn't quite familiar with. And as I started to dive into the psalm, I was like, you know what? I think this is, this would be a good message for us today. Psalm chapter 50, and here's the title. Title of this, you can see it behind me, is this God summons heaven and earth. God summons heaven and earth. A little bit different today. Not gonna be an outline. I want us to experience the psalm as we start from the beginning and we find what's revealed as we walk through these 23 verses. So Psalm 50, get there in verse one, and notice this, God himself is going to summon both heaven and earth and earth and speak to them. So maybe you could ask yourself this question today. If God were to summon us today, come down from, from heaven, manifest himself in such a way to where we're able to see him in some type of way, and he show up and then gather all of heaven and earth together, what would he prioritize? What would he say? That's kind of the theme. That's kind of the thought here today. Psalm 50. Look at the first two verses. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Get the stage here. The mighty one, God the Lord, This is extremely repetitive. You have the mighty one, literally in our language, the mighty one, the almighty God, God, the Lord, the almighty one, Elohim, Jehovah. Getting the attention of who it is that is about to speak, who it is that is summoning the earth, the almighty, the one above every other one, the one who what? Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. He says there, he speaks and he summons the earth. And he says this, from the rising of the sun to the setting. What is that picture there? From the rising of the sun to the setting. From east to west, right? That means everyone. Everyone is being summoned to gather together. And from where is the light of God shining? Where is the attention from the perspective of everyone on the earth going to? It's going to Zion, which, which is God's dwelling place with his people of perfection, I mean, of protection and refuge. But then he also says this concerning where God is in the city of Zion, the perfection of beauty. What's cool is that the world, um, beauty can be subjective, but there's a, there's a way about beauty that's not subjective. It's completely 
objective. It's like the sunrise over a mountainscape that causes everyone from every nation, triumph and tongue to to gasp in awe, to to behold its wonder. It's the same type of objective beauty when you look out into the universe and you see galaxies suspended in the vacuum of space that causes you to marvel. You cannot resist it. There's nothing inside of you that causes you to look at these great, glorious creations of God and go, the perfection of beauty, where beauty comes from, the idea, the definition, the reality, beauty and wonder and something that's pleasant to the eyes comes from and originates with God. True beauty, the perfection of beauty is shining and getting the attention of everyone and all of their attention is turned to Zion or in other words, to Israel, specifically to Jerusalem to where God's people are. God is summoning the earth from there. So you get the picture? The earth is being summoned. Also, the world that is heathen and pagan wants nothing to do with God, but yet notice the almighty power of God to be able to summon the earth and them have nothing to say or do about it. When God says show up, you have to show up. Much like the animals who got aboard the ark. God must have spoke to them and they just obeyed. When God summons his creation and he decides to say, it's time for you to show up and listen to what I have to say, everyone comes. Do we get the picture? So we have this summoning of heaven and both earth as we're going to see. Now look at verse three. This is where we're going to see this theophany appear, which is basically the word means this manifestation of God to his people in some type of way, where he reveals himself to man in some type of way. How does God reveal himself now? Verse three, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to heaven above. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth Notice the picture. God is showing up. He's calling. He's summoning the world. Then what do they see as they approach? They see before God a devouring fire. Scripture calls God an all-consuming fire. A God who is, who is impossibly dangerous to stand before. You know, we sing holy, holy, holy. I think that's one of these words, holy, we don't quite understand. I think we think holy and we think perfect. And, and though God is perfect, when you think holy, you should really be thinking different. You should be thinking completely separate. You should be thinking this. He dwells on a level that no one else dwells. He ain't like the rest of the world. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't talk like us. He doesn't, he doesn't act like the world. He is on a completely different level, separate So when he calls his people to be holy, he's saying, be like me. Don't be like the world. Be removed, called out, separate from them. Be like me. Join my culture, my kingdom. Learn from me. A devouring fire is before him. But then it says this, what is around him? A tempest. It says this, a mighty tempest, symbolizing his power. Okay, now, You got the picture. Now let's put ourselves in the place of God's people. Imagine if God did that today, this almighty summoning of the earth and the heavens. 
and he's, he's like showing up here among his people and he's calling out to the wicked pagan world. And the stage has been set for this devouring fire, this mighty tempest, and we can feel welling up in our hearts. This like, oh, our God's showing up. He's finally speaking to this horrible world. He's gonna give them what for. And it's kind of like we're standing on the city walls as we're watching east from west show up. God behind us and we're standing there like, yeah, you guys are gonna get it now. You see the picture and everyone's coming together. All of the uh, heavenly hosts, all the pagans from all over the world have showed up and they're standing before us down below us as we sit on the city walls and God's thunderous voice speaking to the earth. And then he says this, you hear speak boomingly with bass over your shoulders. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And in that moment, a shiver sent down your spine as you realize that God has assembled all of heaven and all the earth to witness what he is going to say to his people. And you turn around and you see the attention of God face directly on his people. See the beautiful, almost hauntingly, seemingly terrifying shift here? The flip? You can almost sense it in the song welling up in the the heart of us as believers, yes, get the world and the wicked, give them what they deserve. It is time to judge. The stage is set up, but in the moment, God's attention turns not to the world, not to the heavens. He's assembled everyone to witness to what he would prioritize and say because he is summoning his people Maybe you could say this, we thought we were on jury duty, but we're taking the stand while the rest of the world gets to watch. Oh, great, Jasper, thanks for picking this psalm. You're really gonna set this up and like, come on, let's, let's say something exciting. Oh, trust me, there is something exciting in this. The whole point of today is to leave with gratitude in our hearts, trust me. But it's necessary that God come and speak to his people. Now notice this in verse four, when he says he calls to the heaven above and to the earth that he may judge his people. That word judge there is not the idea of punish. This is not what he's talking about when it comes to the word judge in this context. It's the idea of I'm coming to make right certain things. I'm coming to rule over my people. It's almost like the boss is coming to inspect, right? You've had a certain amount of time. Now I'm coming to inspect and to see, and I'm going to make right the wrongs. I'm going to judge and rule and righteousness over my people. So the attention comes comes to the people of God. He says here in verse five, gather to me my faithful ones. Look at the identity of his people, his faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Verse six, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. You see the stage, you see how the psalm, this beautiful song is setting up. You have this summoning. You have the mighty, one of God, the mighty one of heaven being revealed, summoning the earth, then, then revealing himself as an all-consuming, devouring fire with this mighty tempest around him. Gathers the world together and he's going to speak directly to his people. So now he's going to pronounce judgment. 
The type of judgment that's meant to be corrective. The type of judgment that's meant to give insight. The type of judgment that's meant to help. Look what he says here as he talks directly to his people starting in verse 7. He's going to speak first to his people. Hear, O my people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink of blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Okay, now we have to stop here. Something is happening in this psalm that when it was sung or when it was read or when it was recited would have made the people think of other events in history. Right, The moment God shows up and he summons the world and now the moment he talks about Bring my, whole, my faithful people to me who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Their minds as a, as a good Israelite would be going back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, remembering the covenant promises that God made with him and his people. And then also remembering the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua, I think specifically where you had these constant multiple moments of Moses and Joshua summoning the people together to judge to remind them of things, to, to, to basically this, renew their covenant before the Lord. Let me, let me show you one. Go with me real quick. Let's go to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter four. Let's look and see the type of language there. Right before the book of Judges, after Deuteronomy, the book of Joshua, they've entered the promised land. Joshua, which means Jesus, is a man on earth who represents our The king of the army, Joshua chapter four. Forgive me, go with me to chapter eight, it's eight. I'm gonna show you eight and 24, that's where we're gonna be. Chapter eight, AI has fallen. Drop down to verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, a servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant, half of them in the fount of Mount Gerizim and the other half of them on the front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant Lord had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and women and little ones and sojourners who lived among them. This happens several times. The most famous one of all is in chapter 24. Go to chapter 24 of Joshua. 
gathering the people together, reading the law of God, reminding the people of the covenant that God made with them and what they were to keep in their covenant with God, the summoning. Chapter 24 of Joshua. Look at the first verse. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel. And he says many things, but I want you to drop down to the famous verse as he reminds them of all the things that God did for them. Verse 14 of chapter 24. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that the father served beyond the river and Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And if you keep reading, you'll find out that Joshua said this not only before Israel, but also before all the visitors and foreigners who are around hearing everything. So you come back to Psalm chapter 50 and you have this similar type of thing happening where God is summoning the people. It's like I've been silent for a certain amount of time for a specific reason. Now it's time for me to come down and speak priorities to my people to remind them once again of the covenant they made with me and what's important. So, so what should we, as I talk about these two specific types of people, I wanna bring it home a little bit. Here's, so, so what should be going through my heart as I'm sitting here listening to Psalm 50 and, and, and I've been summoned and the rest of the world is listening as God speaks to me, not them. They get to hear a judgment pronounced against me. Our heart should be humble. We should listen but also pay attention to this. God is being very clear and simple, reminding his people of what matters most. You've heard Todd mention about the craziness of the world we live in. Things get crazy in the world, they start getting crazy in our hearts and we begin to lose the vision of what it means to be a Christian sometimes. And we need to be reminded of what matters most and what God requires of us. So let's hear the judgment. First, God speaks to his people, his faithful ones, but there's a problem among his faithful ones. There's a problem among his people, and it's this. It's religiosity. It's over time getting back into the ritualistic repetitions of all the things that they were commanded to do, all the while the main thing was missing, the heart. And when, ju- when God judges his people, it is always about the heart always about the heart because God is the God who dwells in the secret place and he can never be fooled. You and I can fool each other with outer appearances. You and I can be fooled by the outward appearance, but God does not look on the outward. He looks on the inward. You can never fool God. You can only fool yourself. And when it comes to being God's people, 
We should care more about what does God require of me? What does he want? Not what can I do to make myself feel better about being close with God. And so I live in my own little world of religiosity. So I go to bed feeling like a really great Christian. All the while I've never stopped to consider, but what does God think? Look what he says here, verse seven. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I testify against you. I am God. Remember, it's me, almighty speaking. You're God. And then he says this in verse eight. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So he's not coming to his people saying, you're not doing what I told you to do. Actually, he's saying you're your offerings are continual. You've been very consistent. You've been very, uh, very good at doing the outward things that I've said to do. So it's not that that I'm rebuking you for. He says this, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats, goats from your folds. Whoa. whoa, 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 whoa. Now you put yourself, be, be a good Jew with me. You're like, wait, 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 I've read, we read your word all the time. We meditate on your law day and night, like Joshua said, and you have required that these sacrifices come and that they be a perfect, worthy, spotless lamb and that, that we're constantly offering grain offerings and then the, the sacrifice of atonement. We have all, all the things that you set up, God, and now you're saying you're not going to accept them? Why? Well, because he's going to, He's gonna do the the great thing that our God, who is the great teacher, who cares about us understanding right, reminding reminding us again what it's all about. He says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. I, I already own them. You're not giving them to me. The things that you do, you're not doing anything for me like I need it. The the cattle on a thousand hills, mine. I own it. I know all the birds of the hills, assuming you don't even know half of them. And all that moves in the field is mine. You see what God's doing? He's, he's elevating himself in the hearts of the people because what has happened is God has become de-elevated and, and relegated in their hearts to the little human box that they fit him in. Like every other pagan God that man has created to where these gods need to be served by people. Then he says this in verse 12. God says this. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world in its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? This rhetorical question. No, I don't. And then he brings it to the heart. Verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And then he says this. And perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Beautiful what God is doing for his people. And beautiful what this song would do is they would have sung it. It would have constantly reminded them, oh yes, it's not about the ritual. It's not about the outward thing. God doesn't need anything that we do. It's not us doing it to give him something he already has, self-sufficient, everything that he needs. So then the question is, what in the world were the sacrifices for? Pause. Before we go any further, I want us to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 
First Peter chapter four, which actually Todd read from today. It's just how God works. There's no deliberation on this at all. Todd was already in First Peter. Hebrews, James, first, second Peter. I want to remind you again of the scenario. God has come down as judge. He's gathered the whole worlds and the heavens together. He is judging his people as the world witnesses. Verse 17 of chapter four. Peter reminds the Christians now this. Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment starts with God's people first. The household of God gets God's confrontation first. But look what Peter says. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So lest lest we tell God to stop and, and we say, what about them God wants our heart thinking like God is judging us because he's able to talk to us. We listen to him. We actually have his, he has our ears. We, we want to hear what he has to say. And so he speaks directly to his people. He starts the judgment in his house. He brings the corrective rebuke that causes us to turn once again and renew our promises to him in our hearts. And then our hearts should be filled with empathy and care for all of those who are behind us in the world that are pagan and heathen who do not know God as this rings in our heart that says, if judgment begins with us, then what is to become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God is this severe and this clear and pointed with his own people, then what is gonna happen to those who do not obey the gospel? Now, now what do you think would happen to those who are actually watching? They've been summoned to the earth and they're, they're getting to witness God speak to us they're going to naturally feel the exclusion and the judgment. God doesn't even say anything to them. They're gonna know already by the way God speaks to us that they're enemies with him and they do not wanna stand against him. Peter says this, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, now this is where I'm gonna bring it back to the sacrifices, right? New Testament passage to help remind us of what the sacrifices are for. God instituted the sacrifices of animals being offered to God as, as one, one, the law, scripture tells us, was a schoolmaster. It was supposed to teach us and help us learn and prepare our hearts for the real thing that was to come, which was Jesus The law was preparing our hearts to receive Jesus. And the sacrifices were given for the people. God gave us the law for us. That that the animals would be killed on behalf of the people who had sinned and God's wrath would be stayed for a little while. And so we don't give sacrifices because somehow we're giving something to God that he needs. He doesn't need anything. He owns it all. But the sacrifices... We're given for us. So we go back to Psalm 50, and he ends this confrontation with his faithful people. This is why he says in chapter in verse 14, 
offer to God a sacrifice of thanks, thanksgiving and perform your vows before the Most High. It's like, hey, I want to give you respect to remind you, I don't need anything from you. Everything that you have is from me. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation due to change or shadow due to change. He has given you everything, the abundance of Jesus. And so the response should be what? Should it be ritualistic religion where it's like, hey, I just got to do this. I just got to go to church. I just got to read my Bible. I just got to read my devotions. I just got to not watch this. I just got to not talk like that. It's doing all the right things, hating all the right things, loving all the right things. All the while, God's like, I'm seeing all of that. But the one thing that I've been staring at the whole time is your heart and your heart doesn't love me. It's become cold. It's settled. Like, what does God want? Like, God, you show up and you're telling me what you want. Is it the routine? Is it the ritual? No. All of that I've given you as examples to help point your heart to the real thing. I want you. The first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what God wants. I mean, think about yourself as a parent. Maybe you're not a parent. You can at least put yourself in the shoes and understand it. When it comes to your kids, you, you love them so much, you'd give up your whole life for them. And when you see them in, in, in sincerity respond with love, towards you and they obey and they honor you man that feels so good and when they don't man something's wrong you can't even sleep at night and you want to accept the okay i'll take out the trash leave me alone parents like it doesn't work doesn't satiate the longing in the heart to be loved and so what god is doing he's reminding his people once again hey yes i've given the law i've told you to offer these sacrifices but it was never the sacrifice first apart from the heart it's like, I don't, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't need the blood of bulls and goats. I've given you that so that when Jesus shows up as your final, actual, real sacrifice, you can be able to correlate those two things. What you need is a sacrifice. I don't need it. What you need is a sacrifice. And guess who gives it? I give up what belongs to me for you even when you don't deserve it. Man, so this is where 14, so then the right response is, man, my heart should be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. And then he says this, and perform your vows to the most high. Lest you are still in the thought of perform your rituals. So like offer thanksgiving and then perform your rituals. That's not what that means. It says offer thanksgiving and, but he's like, he's saying, perform, you made a covenant with me. You said, if you go and read Joshua, the people responded to Joshua. Yes, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, no, no, you won't know that God will destroy you. If you go back to these gods, your, your sins will not be forgiven and you'll be destroyed as you run away from him. Trying to, trying to really help the people understand the severity. And they said, no, we will serve the Lord. And so the constant covenant renewal that happened at the end is, okay, remember what you said. You said you would. Do what you said you'd do. Pay your vows. You vowed before the Lord, I will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, are you? That's the question. But it starts with that heart of thanksgiving. Vows are easier to pay when you're overwhelmed with love for someone. But when your heart loves the world, but you know you kind of have to follow God and you, kinda, that, that's, you can't quasi-serve him that way. He's not kind of impressed or kind of okay with it. God has summoned his people. The world is listening. 
We cannot offer God anything. He has everything. So to his people who are faithful, who are continually doing the right things, a great, wonderful reminder. It is about a relationship with me, not religion. Something we need to constantly be reminded of. It is a relationship with me, not religion. Relationship with me, not religion. Verse 15, he says, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You see the heart of God? It's like, man, I want you. I just want us to have this relationship. You have great needs. I see them, but I want you to call on me and I will deliver you and you'll glorify me and the relationship will be right. That's what's gonna be best for you. And so we here today, thousands of years later, reading the Psalm as the people of God, Maybe not, not, not Israel in the Middle East, but here as Christians in the church of God with the full revelation that came through Jesus Christ, who's not spoken to us just by prophets, but now today by his son, who has the ultimate sacrifice. We even more so should be offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord. This is what it is. So if there's something I want you to zero in on, it's like, God, what do you, what do you want from me? Pay attention to your life. Has your life been filled with a grumbling, complaining, God, why are you doing what you're doing? Why aren't you helping me? What, what, it, has your life been filled with that? It's not, God wants your heart to overflow with thanksgiving. Peter even said, rejoice so far as you suffer as a Christian, that you are partakers of Christ in that. The spirit of God, Peter says, that you have resides on you. Rejoice, be thankful, have gratitude. Paul says in Colossians that your thanksgiving guards your prayers. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Guard in the same with thanksgiving. What, what is the same? Continually praying, continually thankful. Read the book of Philippians. Paul is in prison and you know what he says over and over and over and over while in a state where he humanly would be grumbling and complaining? Rejoice, again I say rejoice. Have you forgotten all the benefits that you have in Jesus? Jesus has given up his life for you. He has secured an eternal salvation for you. God is with you wherever you go. The Holy Spirit has been given and he temporally dwells inside of you and he's with you, has not forsaken you and never will. And every day you wake up, his mercies are new every morning. The steadfast love of the never Lord never ceases. He's with you and he's trying to use everything for you and then everything you go through purposely for him and his glory, making your life mean something God, thank you, thank you. God, I wake up, thank you. Fill my heart with thanksgiving and gratitude. God sees the individuals who are filled with that and the individuals who are filled with something else. So you could take someone who's maybe struggling with the outward routines, but inside they're grateful and God is very pleased with that person versus someone who's immaculately got every single thing dotted out and all the while God's still waiting on their heart, the thing he wanted in the beginning anyway. Time being wasted as someone's giving sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. All the while, God never needed any of that. What he wants is your heart. Can you imagine what's going through the mind of the earth as they're listening to God say this? Because what are the people on earth finding out about God as they hear God say this? They're looking down at their wooden idols who have in oppression demanded that you serve me. I need blood. I need this. I need this. You must give to some wooden idol crafted by human hands. You must give and serve me. 
And you come to Acts chapter 17 when Paul is speaking to the Aragopas, the people in Athens, and he says, the God of heaven who is not served by human hands. You cannot serve God. He needs nothing. This, this then brings us to the, to the reality of the religion that we have that is actually real, the real religion, because every other religion demands human service to a false God. You come to the Bible and God says, no, I will serve you. And then I'll teach you to serve others. And I demonstrated this love for you by, while you were still sinners, my son died for you. Philippians. Jesus, though equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but humbled himself to the point of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did that for you. If you thought Christianity was all about God demanding that you serve him, you're thinking about world religions. You're not thinking about Christianity. Yes, we serve God, but that service flows from the abundance of gratitude and thanksgiving because we understand that he served us first. He doesn't need us, but he desires relationship with us and he treats us as no father on earth has ever treated us. The sacrifice of God's people should not be religion. It should be thanksgiving. It should be people who mean what they say. But the judgment does not end there. God speaks to his people. He speaks to those within his people who he calls faithful, right? Who needed to be reminded, who needed their hearts of zeal to be stoked again, who needed to be, uh, put, have apathy pushed out. He reminded them, but then he turns his heart to a different type of people that were dwelling among his people in verse 16, but, look what he says here. But to the wicked, God says. He's not speaking to the world now. The, the temptation may be thinking that, oh, now he's turning his mind to all the earth that he's gathered. No, he's still speaking to those who are among his people. But these people he's gonna talk to, he calls them wicked. He says this, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statues or take my covenants on your lips? This is how we know he's still talking to his people. Gather my people together. Now I'm talking about those who are among my people whose identity though is wicked, not faithful, wicked. And he challenges them. What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenants on your lips? And he says this right after he just told the faithful ones to pay your vows. The things that you say Make them true. Don't just say it, mean it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But now he's gonna talk to the wicked people already who are hypocrites. And then he gives a a description of what's wrong with them. Verse 17, he says, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Well, who here likes discipline? Anybody here? Actually, Hebrews chapter 12 says like no one like enjoys discipline in the moment because it seems hard. But if you're thinking about discipline in the, in the realm of a type of punishment that's cruel, then you're thinking about worldly discipline and you're not thinking about God's discipline. Hebrews tells us that God's discipline is always meant to restore the peaceful fruit of repentance in your life. 
God disciplines in a way that's always good for you and good to you and has your, your benefit in mind. And these people among his people, they hated discipline. For you hate discipline, but here's how we know what type of discipline it is. He says this, and you cast my words behind you. It's this idea that God is trying to discipline. He's trying to correct and mold people with his words, with his commandments. He's trying to change the way people think and what they believe in their heart. And he's trying to mold them to think and believe differently and be guided by his words. Your word is a lamp to my feet and light to my path, the Old Testament says. Read Psalm 119. You'll see just how important the words of God are in the discipling, disciplining, and growth of a believer. And he says, you hate discipline. You hate all of my efforts to try to use my words to make you a better person and you cast them behind you. It's kind of like, whatever. Just goes right out the window. Verse 18, he gets a little bit deeper. He reveals the heart. Remember, God dwells in the heart. I bet, I bet many of them probably hearing God saying this, thinking like, who is he talking about? We don't see this happening at all. That's right. You don't see it on the outward appearance, but God sees it in the heart. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. Now notice, he didn't say you are a thief. He says you see a thief. So it's the idea of like, I've still got everything on the outside right, but I observe something and I want to somehow, I want to somehow get in on that. I want to take part of it. There's a thief. And instead of being, re, being re, revolt, having a revolt in my heart thinking that's wrong, I'm like, how can I get in on that in a subtle, secretive way? And says, you're pleased with him. God's people, among his people, who call, say that they're his people on their lips, rejoicing when a thief is able to find a way to get some type of fast, corrupt money. I want to make a part of it. God's like, I see that. I see that right there in your heart. I see it happening. And you keep company with adulterers. Well, you got to be friend of sinners, right? This is not the idea of, of being friends to someone. This is the idea of you, you, are the, you would commit adultery. Given the opportunity, you would take the pleasure in the moment, the adultery against God and the adultery against your spouse. You give your mouth free reign of evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent, though you thought I was like one yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. God spoke to the religious and he says, I want relationship. Now he's speaking to the wicked and he's saying, I want repentance. Those among God's people who use their lips to say the right things, but their hearts far from him. And this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Isaiah prophesied about the Pharisees and Jesus said, well, did he prophesy of you for you may, you're skilled at making the commandments of men, the commandments of God. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Man, God summons the world. What's he gonna prioritize? Is he gonna speak to the wicked? No, he's gonna speak to his people. When he speaks to his people, what is he gonna remind? He's gonna remind the faithful, keep your heart in it. And he's gonna remind those who are simply attached and associated, who are just speaking with their lips, repent. 
James talks about out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And James says, these things ought not be so. So there you say, you hear people who recite the covenants on the lips of God, but then they give their mouth free reign of evil. They're never trying to do anything to stop their mouth. Their mouth says what they want to say all the time. Their tongue frames deceit. They're not afraid to sow discord among people. They don't care about the, what it does. You see, sit and speak against your brother. Gossip, man. The proverb says gossips are dainty morsels that go downward into the inward parts, man. I just know something I want to talk about. It. I could care less about what it does to so the person's reputation. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done. And then look, God says this. I have been silent. You know, the greatest deception is all of thinking that God's not hitting you with a lightning bolt or punishing you immediately as somehow some type of approval of what you're doing. God is patient and silent, so we have the opportunity to repent. He's good to us, and the Romans tells us that the goodness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. But he's also silent just to give us time to reveal who we really are. Are we who we say we are? And First Peter is all about that. You have time for the fiery trial come against you to prove who you really are. I'm using a lot of you, 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 you. Please know that I'm not sitting here thinking you, you, you. I'm take, we're taking the place together of the people of God in this psalm and what it would feel like to hear God speaking to us this way. But remember, all of this is God showing up for a covenant renewal. All of this is gracious. This is not mean. This is, not, uh, this is God reminding you of what matters most. And he's given those among his people who are wicked, who have not repented, he's even reminding them so they can turn and repent. I want you as the wicked to repent and go the right way. So verse 22, as we're concluding this up, mark this then you who forget God lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. You know, make make that the banner over your home. When people walk into your home, you put that verse there. It's like, hey, welcome to our humble abode. We uh, try our best not to forget God so we are not torn apart. Come on in. It's not one of those verses you like put on the coffee mug, right? It's not one of those verses you like just wake up in the morning feeling like, mmm. But, but I'm curious about how you read this, though. I am curious about when you, when you hear this say, what, how, how are you receiving it in your heart? Are you receiving it as a kind of like bloodthirsty uh, God who is looking at any moment to tear you apart? Like you're hearing the visceral language and you're tempted to think God is excited and ready to do that. If, if you tend to read through the scriptures and your heart never rejoices over the good things over you, but all you hear are the things that seem vindictive and condemning, there's nothing wrong with scripture. There's something wrong with your view of God. Because what God is doing, here's really what he's doing, is you have a bunch of people running and they don't see the cliff in front of them and he's standing in front of them and saying, hey, if you keep running, you're gonna fall off a cliff and die. How is that unloving? How is that not the right thing to do? That is what God's doing. He's intervening. He's showing up before it's too late and he's saying, the tearing apart is coming. I'm not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Don't forget me. It will only mean your destruction. I'm trying to save you and I love you enough to write a whole word and keep a constant reminder and a constant 
alternate covenant renewal before your eyes so you'll not be pulled away by the ever-present vortex of the demonic world that wants to pull your hearts away from God. And God in his loving judgment rule over his people, the right type of rule that brings their hearts, everyone, back to him. And then he sums it up in verse 23. All the whole, the whole thing is summed up in verse 23. Here's what God's saying. Offer, verse 23. Oh, my page. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Brothers and sisters, is thanksgiving a part of your life? It's a non-negotiable. If it's hard to be thankful, then you've forgotten God. You've forgotten what he's done for you. You forgot what he's doing for you. You need to sit and ruminate and think about everything that you do not deserve that God's done for you. And you force your heart to, re- to think of these things until your heart bubbles over with gla- gratitude. Isn't this reassuring? God's not sitting there telling you to serve him in all these, all these ritualistic ways. He's saying, I just want your heart. Don't forget what I've done for you. He says, this is the person that glorifies me. He says, the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. You see, both people are concluded in the simple applications there. The religious who are faithful, put your heart back into it. And those who are wicked, repent. Order your way rightly. And guess what? When you do repent, then it will lead to that next step of faithful th- faithfulness and thanksgiving. God's constant Glorious reminder. And he says, I will show the salvation of God. God's people have salvation coming. So when he summons his people and he brings the earth to see it, God is not trying to like hide his, protect his reputation. He doesn't need to protect it. He doesn't need anything. He wants the whole world to see who he is and how he deals with his people. And if the world is watching and sees how God deals with his people, they will surely, they will surely see that they are enemies of God. And the goal is that he will then use us who are ordered rightly to bring them into the fold and to save their life from the coming destruction. I think pretty relevant as we start to, as a church, focus on the world around us and the evilness in the world. The reason I feel led to give this psalm, you come back to this when you feel your heart starting to judge the world and think about how wicked and horrible they are and how they need to be punished. Judgment begins at the household of God. God's not starting there. He's always starting here. And he wants us to order our way rightly and have our hearts right before him. So then we will be a people who actually shine forth the perfection of beauty, the type of light into the world that actually saves people and instead doesn't push them away like Pharisees and says they're unclean and won't touch people and and, and be the very type of people that Jesus was not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would imagine a summoning like this would not, it would not leave us uh, necessarily cheering, but it would leave us with a, a somber, humble sense of, of joy and thanksgiving. But God, we would, we would rightfully feel the severity of being your people to whom much is given, much is required. You've saved us. You've given us a sacrifice. So we offered you a sacrifice of praise 
and ask that you would keep us in relationship with you where, where our hearts are ever zealous and excited and thankful before you. You would help us to repent and shun evil. And then God, you would use us to call the world into this beautiful family. We don't need to stand before you in fear. There can be salvation seen by all those who come in. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.